Hello and welcome back to Avantgarde Talk. I hope everyone is having a great 2021 so far. In this episode, James, Ben, Fergal, and I discuss Chapter 16 of The Mandalorian. We go into great detail about this episode, so there will be spoilers. I hope you enjoy the show. So Chapter 16, Mandalorian. Pretty lit. Uh, where would you rank it amongst the rest of the episodes within that season? It was honestly my favorite out of last season. I agree. For me, I think I'd put it as number two. What's your number one? My number one is... Uh, oh, I can't remember what chapter it is, but the one with Boba's entrance. The tragedy chapter. That was like Ooh, 15, yeah. 14, I think. Yeah. I think it was 14. Just because I think that, that whole Boba sequence was so fucking beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to rewatch uh, all of them, but I think if it holds up under you know the rewatch i think it'll probably be my favorite just because like it's kind of a bombshell it's like bombshell after bombshell right it was a really really risky way to follow up an episode like the one before it where they introduced ahsoka and had really cool action scenes and like uh, everyone was highly anticipating ahsoka's entrance and then they follow it up with yeah everyone's really highly anticipated boba entrance and he just went to town and it was just it was awesome moment after awesome moment after awesome moment yeah yeah but i i feel that chapter 16 kind of balanced it out there was a lot of really cool stuff that happened but it all didn't have the same level of impact and i think they built up to it really well yeah yeah, yeah. so am i wrong in assuming that there is a third season in in the mix there is. Yes. That's already okay. confirmed, I believe. Okay. So I was going to say, like, honestly, I was a little worried uh, because, you know, I didn't know that. But this would seem like a really good place to end the series. Like, if you were going to only do yeah. two seasons. Mm-hmm. Yep. This would be the way to do it is, like, introduce your biggest bombshell and then have a nice, you know, sort of soft landing on the whole series. But I like that because mm-hmm. it's like they've finished the overarching story for the season and there's, like, the horizons are open. There's no loose ends to be tied up, really. So they can do whatever they want. I want to add to what Ben is saying. Um, so when this episode aired, and we see at the end the Book of Boba, uh, there was a lot of speculation that season three of The Mandalorian is going to be the Book of Boba. And right. I mean, realistically, the ending that we see, like it kind of wraps up Din's story. So I can right. see I can see why people thought that. But John Favreau went on, I think, Good Morning America and said that the Book of Boba is going to be its own spinoff series. And we right. will be getting a chapter three or season three of The Mandalorian. Well, yeah, because I mean, the ending of chapter 16 kind of opens up a new question right. and part of mm-hmm. Din's story with The Mandalorians. So it doesn't really close Din's story. It just. Yeah. It concludes the Din and Grogu relationship. Not really even the relationship, just their journey. And the way that I viewed it is that through the will of the Force, even though Din doesn't know much about it, uh, Grogu has been delivered to his people and Din has been delivered to his. Yeah. And I Mm -hmm. think that's like a really poetic way to look at it because Grogu ends up with the people that they've spent two seasons trying to find, which is the Jedi. And... Din ends up with the people he's been spending two seasons searching for, which is the Mandalorians. And yeah. now he has the, you know, 
technically the rightful rule over Mandalore. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's for such a passionate Mandalorian, he doesn't know a whole lot about them besides uh, no take helmet off. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think next season is going to be a really, really interesting view on the Mandalorian people. There's going to be a lot of history. And I'm excited for it because we're going to be learning kind of alongside Din because he's going to be experiencing a lot of the new cultural ideas that he wasn't exposed to because of the people who rescued him. Yeah. Yeah. I think, honestly, the chapter system that they've decided to go with, like, instead of being like, this is season one, episode, whatever, like, just having a continuous uh, chapter uh, system is really good for a series like this because, like Fergal was saying, we've, like, seen what the end of this part of Din's story looks like. So, like, if you're reading a book and the chapter ends, generally it's that little story ends. Or, or whatever like we're seeing the end of this phase of din's life and we're seeing this the end of this <laughs> relationship period between Gro grogu and din um and i think that leaving it as chapters and not episodes kind of takes it away from like the formulaic tv sort of system where it's like okay you have small arc per episode larger arc per season but really you can get this continuous arc throughout the whole series and not mm -hmm. have it feel like it's chopped up into little pieces. It feels like they made a really, really long movie. Yeah. And then yeah. they were like, where can we make this into chapters? Or where can we split this up? It feels like it in itself is a book that is just visualized. Yes. Like obviously agree, you get yeah. like books that are made into films and everything, but they, they kind of ruin it a bit when they do that. But this, Yep. feels like it could be exactly like you could literally have it as a, a book and it would be exactly the same this helps with like the argument with the different episode times because a lot of people are angry that each episode is not like an hour exactly but in a chapter of a book each chapter is not the same length yeah. so yeah and it's only what you need each chapter has an intention of telling a specific part of the story and when that specific part is over you move to the next chapter that's mm -hmm. how it's divided in a book. This is exactly how I, I would have wanted uh, like The Hobbit to be written. Instead of splitting it up into three movies where it's like we have to manufacture more story because it's not a long book. I mean, it's like 275 pages, something like that. <laughs> like having a yeah. chapter system where you could have like two movies where it's it's broken up like the beginning where they're getting to the Misty Mountain and then or the Lonely Mountain. And then the next part I think would have been better. Two movies would do 275 pages justice and having chapters would have allowed you to sort of be faithful to J.R.R. Tolkien's work. And I think that's what they're doing really well. It's like they're sort of writing their own book while they're making the series, which I like a lot. Oh, yeah. So let's talk more specifically about this episode because there was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot. I personally was engaged super into it the entire time there was not even a dull moment yeah. for me i i was glued to exactly. the screen watching it right when this episode opens we open right in the middle of action so it draws oh, yeah. you in automatically it's kind of like the episode with ahsoka we're dropped in into the middle of ahsoka beating the crap out of people so <laughs> this is very similar to this one um i do want to say this 
this chapter is my favorite and I think it's how it's written and the score. So I'm a big music nerd and I love Ludwig Gorson's work, especially with Tenet and Black Panther. He's he's amazing. And he outdid himself with this score. There's hints of the DSE right in there, which is my favorite musical motif. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I have a lot of music notes later, but I just want to say that I think this episode or this chapter has the best score out of all of them. I listen to the Dark Trooper theme a lot. <laughs> a bop. It's a banger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Dubstep in Star Wars. No one saw it coming. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I would be very, very shocked if there was not inspiration from the Rogue One score. Just because yeah. of like how it's structured. It's it's again like using that DSERA motif. I think I said this in like our second episode or something. I was talking about Rogue One and how much I love the score. And it's because they use DSERA like to foreshadow death. And I think that's so cool. And I think that there's probably direct inspiration from Rogue One in the Mm -hmm. structure of this. And I love that a lot. One of the things I love the most about the music in The Mandalorian is that they they do a good job of keeping the Star Wars style in some areas, like the classical, you know, orchestral, big crash symbols, like stuff like that. But they Mm -hmm. also aren't afraid to stray more into like modern instrumentation the amount of times that they use guitar whether acoustic or electric Mm -hmm. yeah flutes uh i mean they're like mando's main theme is on a flute right yeah and i i really just appreciate how they're taking advantage of what they have available to them in this time and they're not just trying to keep it the same as it's always been because it's really refreshing and it's so much more exciting yeah. when you know you see the dark troopers and instead of some violin just going <laughs> you're getting dubstep hello that's awesome <laughs> big time iron man vibes you know like rock yeah. music like yeah. i don't know i i love the fact that they strayed away from the simple style not to say that it was just like a simple style but it, the same style of music has been used in every star wars movie and every star wars show mm-hmm. And it was exciting and refreshing. Yeah, Gorson wanted to, in an interview, he said he wanted to convey that feeling that he had when he first heard Darth Vader's theme. And Mm. by doing so, he had all these new instruments and new sounds, and it's all new and exciting, which is probably why it's, it's really good. He also wanted to style it after Westerns and, oh shoot, why am I blanking? Samurai films, there we go. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that, but I can totally see the inspiration. Dude, one of my favorite movies ever is True Grit. Like the the modern remake is really good, but I think the older one is is way better. And like, I don't know. I think in a general sense, scores can be a reflection of the film as a whole and like the the attitudes applied to it. So I think mm-hmm. that like with Rogue One, like it was a Star Wars movie. It was um in a sense a prequel, really. Um, but it, not not as uh, divisive as the other prequels, but it, it was a prequel. And so in that in that uh, category, it, it used or the score used um, similar instrumentation to the original trilogy. It was very like the, the music was written in the style of, of John Williams. And I think that was amazing. But I think that you're seeing in Mandalorian like 
there's this branching out, uh, you know, film wise, like, like cinematography wise, mm-hmm. um, story wise, it's, it's a new thing. And so the score reflects that it's a new thing. Whereas yes. like the prequels, it was very much like, I think in part a cash grab or fan service or whatever you want to call it. And so the score was nearly identical to, to what it was before. Um, in the original trilogy, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you see a lot of times in sequels and prequels of different movie series, the same exact score. But mm-hmm. I think what's beautiful about this is it's brand new, and so they're using brand new instrumentation, brand new style. They've brought in someone brand new, and I love that so much. Mm-hmm. The amount of different music that there is is insane, too. When you look at the movies, I mean, everybody has a theme, you know, but... yeah the themes are used you know multiple times in the same movie and there's like three repeating themes throughout the course of the mandalorian it's the mando you know the that one because you hear that a lot because that's his theme and through a couple episodes you hear like the mystical sounding music of grogu like when he's looking at the eggs it's like that wondrous sound but for the most part nothing's really recycled um Like, like there were very small hints of the Dark Trooper theme in the tragedy when they were flying down Iron Man style to go get mm-hmm. Grogu. But, I mean, that wasn't really, really introduced until right. the last episode or the last chapter. And not hearing the same music over and over again is another really just small detail that I don't think mm-hmm. many people think about. Duel of the Fates is in every single prequel movie. But it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. But it's also in every one. Right. If if you had the the music for like when Luke Skywalker was running through just murking dark troopers, that was like the way that was written, it was just emotional music. And yeah. if that was introduced earlier in the show, especially multiple times, it would not have had the same impact. I agree. Yeah. I want to bring up some things about the music that I noticed. So you started talking about the dark troopers. So when we hear their theme for the first time in chapter 16, they're getting powered up. And once mm-hmm. they are powered up and they start walking, they're walking at a syncopated beat. So it represents in the music that something's off about these troopers, that they're not good. But I feel like that you get a sense of uneasiness with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You get you were just talking about when we see Luke Skywalker. Now, when the doctor, I can't remember his name. <laughs> but yes, so he was saying that your judgment about how many troopers are on there is misleading. And he starts talking about the dark troopers. So underneath that, we hear this, it's kind of like in a minor third. It's the we hear the theme that we hear when Luke Skywalker is beating up all the dark troopers. We hear a little bit of that kind of foreshadowing that they're going to die. And it's because mm-hmm. it's at a minor third and so it's like a scary sounding yeah, interval right. for those who, of you who aren't music nerds. <laughs> um, and I think that's really It sounds cool. sad. It, it sounds, sounds sad. <laughs> well, I think in the vein of like what James was saying, I think that music plays a huge part of a film psychologically. Like yes. you can make the audience feel whatever you want by just changing the score. So I think that like for us as music nerds, um, it, it's something different. But for the general like lay audience, layman, laywoman kind of deal, um, it's it's different because like you don't really know what 
it is that's making you feel different, but it's definitely there. Like with mm-hmm. Diasire in Rogue One, and then again in Mandalorian, it's like you're you, like it's dread. Like yeah. we saying that Bridget and right. I and James was involved, but Bridget and I saying that um, in high school, and like that song is just pure dread distilled into <laughs> notes on page. Like it is day so. Of it's, a, day it's, of a, it's not a big deal, but it's amazing. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, yeah, James was involved. He played something percussion, I think. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> That's what I wanted to ask James, because a lot of the music in The Mandalorian, it's very rhythmic heavy and rhythmic driven. So I don't know if you noticed anything about that. Well, I think that one thing I was about to say is that you can utilize rhythm to give an indication on how the scene is going. So oftentimes in really like busy scenes, it'll be more rhythmic. and that's one of the things that I really liked about this episode is when you have the dark troopers loading up, you know, you have like the crazy, you know, dubstep, like super condensed rhythms. Like, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And like the, the bass drum kicks that are all syncopated and stuff. And it's like mm-hmm. a really cool beat. Uh, but it's also like, whoa, this is a lot happening right now. Yeah. And they're just walking, you know, like maybe they're yeah. punching yeah. a wall. Or something i think one of the really cool things that uh, musical motifs allow you to do is like they can be character specific like we were saying like in all mm-hmm. of the sequels prequels uh the original trilogy there's like common motifs and i think one of the cool things that i actually liked out of the sequels which is not a whole lot um <laughs> was the use of palpatine's score in ray's score or ray's yeah. uh ray's motif was really really cool but i think what it does is uh specifically like with her score and with um i'm blanking on his name ben solo kylo ren his his score sorry i yeah brain fart his score (laughs) is like it's not like darth vader's darth vader's is very like overbearing and dark and it's all minor and it's like weird intervals Mm -hmm. and it's just really (laughs) overbearing but kylo ren's is like like you can kind of hear some really coordinate like notes like there's very like beautiful sections of his score along Mm -hmm. with the very minor very overbearing parts and i think it demonstrates his sort of duality of character like there's this jedi training and then there's this like i have to be bad because my grandfather was bad kind of deal you know yeah right and i think what's beautiful about rays is there's the same conflict going on but it's under the radar because like her, her genealogy she is a palpatine and so you have this Palpatine score, this common sort of uh, feeling, this common inclination to bad. Whereas you've got her character as an individual, that's sort of the rest of her motif. It's very light and like good. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we get that with Luke Skywalker's is like he's calm at center. Like he's in complete control mm-hmm. and he is not breaking a sweat like James was saying while he's just murking troopers left and right. And it's because like the Jedi are trained to just be neutral like at at center Mm -hmm. they are good or good or at least neutral they're balanced and i think that's a really cool thing when grogu puts his hand on the monitor for the first time there's the octave interval that we hear and i feel like that's a tip of the hat to the main theme of star main theme of star wars and Mm -hmm. the force theme which the force theme is in open the doors that's what the piece is called Mm-hmm. And I get chills every time. It's 
it's the force theme, but I think it's down four intervals or four steps. Mm -hmm. um, four keys. There we go. I was like, what is the word? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the score itself was amazing. Um, but I do want to switch gears and talk mm -hmm. about the last 10 minutes, basically, because that's the thing that Twitter went crazy for. You either love <laughs> the CGI on Luke, you either hate it. Like, so let's let's start talking about that. Virgil has unmuted. Yeah, he has. He's ready. <laughs> He's risen. Well, He's okay, alive. I'll 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 start. My opinion on it is that um they sacrificed a very, very, very small amount of overarching quality of just like viewing mm -hmm. for a greater story. And I would take that 10 out of 10 times. I would take that every single day of the week. Mm -hmm. if, if it looks just a little bit out, but it creates a narrative that is more powerful than anything else that you could have done, I'm 100% satisfied. And yeah, his mouth looked a little weird when he was talking. <laughs> Big deal. Uh, yeah, you got that uncanny valley let, let, let's, put it, let's put it this way. It's, it's not as bad as it was in Rogue One, okay? Because in Rogue One... <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even going to go into that. But Leia in Rogue One pisses me off, and it's nice to see in yeah, that this that they they fixed it with Luke mm -hmm. and the the uh, extra muscle that Leia had in her lip um, that Luke doesn't have, which is nice. But my mm -hmm. biggest problem with it is that it kind of just seemed that they took the kind of CG character model from Star Wars Battlefront Two and shoved it in there. <laughs> I was going to say it looks like a Detroit Become Human. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, the voice just kind of... its It was Mark Hamill, but they had to de-age it, obviously. And right. so, because they... It was Mark Hamill speaking, but they de-aged it. It just sounds a little bit off. Yeah. Which I think there were other ways to get around it. I mean, all in all, it's good. Like, it's, it looks good. It's just that there are tiny little details that I obviously pick up on a lot. And, right, <laughs> but overall, like Luke looks good, you know. Yeah, it adds the story, like it gives the story. He looks like Luke Skywalker exactly. You know who he is. You know, you're not going to get mad because he suddenly has three extra hairs or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's not one of the things I noticed. But that's, like, that's an interesting force power. <laughs> one of the difficulties, though, I think, is like you're not. This is not like Mark Hamill at the same time as as Episode Six. Like it's not. He's older yeah. than he was in the last of the original trilogy, but he's younger than he is in the sequels. So it's a mm -hmm. hard line to ride because you can't use, mm -hmm. you know, the exact mm -hmm. same model as, as you used before because like people change as they age. I don't look anything like I did two years ago. And so Mark Hamill as Luke is not going to look anything like he did, you know, two years before, however long before. And so it's right. like there's a little bit of uh, pioneering that has to go on where they're like, okay. We can't use the same model as younger Luke. We can't use the same model as older Luke. So we kind of have to bridge that gap somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think they did an amazing job because mm -hmm. that's something that's just like as a person who's not an artist, I can't fathom doing that. Like it, it just sounds so difficult. Well, even within the scope of, of his character, I mean, he was like 23, right? Or 22 or right. something during mm -hmm. episode six. And this is uh, six, ten years later, around that time frame. So, I mean, that's a long time. But it's also a time where you don't change a whole lot. But, but you do change. But you do right. change. Yeah. It's not the exactly. difference between when you're 
12 and when you're 20, but it's, it's not like nothing happens either. I mean, I so, still look like right. I'm 12. They kind of, okay. Well, <laughs> they kind of have to, yeah, like Ben would say, you have to kind of make a judgment call of like how old, how young do we want to make him look right. without making it seem like it's out of time or yeah. out of the yeah. timeline. And that's a really difficult thing to do. It was way better. Even though the mouth animation was a little janky, way, way better than Henry Cavill when they had to CGI out his oh, mustache. Geez. I'm just saying, oh, yeah. way, way better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, talking about, I, we're talking about Justice League now. Talking about Justice League, people. <laughs> that was so rough. Because you see him in Mission Impossible, and you're like, yeah, that's Henry Cavill. And then you see him in Justice League, and you're like, like what? They massacred my boy. What is happening? <laughs> Who are you? Superman had extreme plastic surgery. He's like, no, I don't want to shave. I can feel for him because, like, it's difficult. Like, that's he has a nice mustache, and it it definitely took a while to grow because mustache hair grows way slower than the rest of my beard. And so it's like I can definitely understand not wanting to delay shooting by two months so that you can grow your mustache back out. Like, that would suck. That is fair. Yeah. So I want to get y'all's opinion on the symbolism of Din taking off his helmet. So what I believe it means, so Din has changed as a character. He's changed as a person. And the scene is very important for multiple reasons. The first is that it showed how brilliant an actor Pedro Pascal is. And that is not a question. We already know he's amazing, but that scene, it's it's amazing. And his acting is just beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. The moment between him and Grogu was very touching and don't even get me started on the score underneath we talked about the score a lot so i'm not gonna like go into greater detail but ah (laughs) um so din has changed as a person he's grown and it showed how much he loved grogu he broke the rules for him and i think now he understands that he doesn't need to follow all of the rules he's gonna adapt when he needs to so i think that's what that scene symbolized so my opinion on the helmet takeoff thing is that he was obviously like taught not to do it. And I think it was because they were so limited in numbers that if they mm-hmm. didn't show their face, it helps keep how many numbers they have in question, especially if there's only one out at a time. You can't really tell the difference between Mandalorian armor a whole lot, but you can mm-hmm. tell the difference between a face. Right. However, when he's with other Mandalorians and when he's with people he cares about and he knows there's a mission that needs to be done. I think that he is growing to, to learn to sacrifice that anonymity for the sake of the mission. Like Mm -hmm. we saw it first really in chapter 15, the believer, which is personally my second favorite episode of the season. Call me crazy. I thought it was awesome. Um, Where he, he and Bill Burr, Uh, have a really interesting dynamic where they both kind of realize that what they are thinking and what they're believing is kind of wrong in a way. And Bill Burr calls him on it and he's like, hey, what's your deal? You can Mm -hmm. take off the helmet, but you can't show your face. What's, what's What's the problem? Like, I don't understand what you're doing. And I think that part of it is Din realizing that what he was instilled doesn't really matter a whole lot. Um, or right. it's not as important as he thought it was. Because yeah. at the end of the day, when it when it comes down to saving the ones you love and having a connection with someone you love, I mean, eye-to-eye contact, that's 
that's it. That's what you want. And yeah. and you can tell Grogu's been trying all season to see Din's face. Mm-hmm. And I think he recognizes now that there's more than just being a Mandalorian. Like, he can yeah. be Din. I was going to say, one of the really cool things is, like, we see slight character changes throughout the series. Um, and like James was saying, he's grown a ton, like, a lot. But it begins with him, like, kind of fraterni- frat- fraternizing? Yeah, fraternizing with the target which is grogu and then he's like okay straight up i'm just gonna break the code and i'm gonna take him with me he's mine now and like we see that in the beginning and it's like not a huge shift but it's enough to be like okay there's some difference there and then we slowly see Mm -hmm. him change more and more and this is like that pivotal moment where he's never going to be the same again like this is it yeah he takes off the helmet and he's like okay i recognize that like what I believed before while practical for, um, you know, survival as the Mandalorian, you know, race or clan or whatever you want to call it. Like it's no longer necessary. And I think it parallels really well with like, again, I'm going to bring up biblical illusions, but like in the Bible, the Jews are not allowed to eat pork or certain types of unclean animals, fish without scales, all that kind of stuff. But then after Mm -hmm. Jesus comes, we see him come to Peter in a dream And he says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. Who are you to call anything that I've made unclean? And so it's like he's he is letting him know that because of like this character growth, because of this sacrifice, he no longer has to adhere blindly to rules of old. And I think that's what's happening with Din is he's like realizing that like I've already sacrificed so much. There's no need to adhere to this creed that has no bearing on my life anymore. I think that's really, it's kind of a beautiful way to just tie it up in a bow, his character development. Mm-hmm. One of the things I do want to say about this show is I think it's incredible that out of all of these two seasons or two books or whatever they're called, I we maybe had like five to seven screen time minutes of Pedro Pascal's mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. Yet we have such an incredible attachment to the character and like we could feel his emotion even through mm-hmm. the helmet. And it I think that it makes him taking off the helmet that much more powerful. Because yeah, when we had the scene in chapter 13, the Jedi, where he's in the ship with Grogu and he's like, All right, buddy, it's time to say goodbye. You can feel the hurt and you can like see it through his helmet. Like it's I don't know if what what does that it's the cinematography, like the angle of his helmet, what it is, yeah. but you can tell. He's he's hurting, like he's down right. bad. And you know, Ahsoka says, I can't train him, take him to Tython. And you know, you go to the next episode. Mm-hmm. But when you have that moment of just dread, and then on Tython, he gets taken and the razor crest gets annihilated, and you could see just the panic of he like stumbles forward a little bit. He's like, What? What just happened? And uh, you can see all of these emotions just on his yeah. helmet which is incredible. And then when you have this moment where he takes off the helmet and looks Grogu in the eye, eye to eye, yeah, it's just, right. it's everything. It hurts. It's painful. <laughs> it's sad. It's beautiful. And it's, I, it, it yeah. hits different. I guess um, that's the best. When R2 showed up, when I tell you, I sobbed <laughs> so much. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, Okay, so I just watched like two days ago uh, The Invisible Man. And I know this is a divergence, but I promise you I'm getting back to topic really quick. 
Um, amazing movie, by the way. 100% recommend it. It's part of what was going to be a reboot of the Universal Monster franchise, and it was going to be a whole series, and they kind of scrapped it, but they kept Invisible Man. Super good. Anyway, the director said that using cinematography uh, where you can't see one of the characters is super difficult, but what you have to do is make the audience feel like there's something there when there's nothing there. And part of that is score. Like he, the score gets really intense and you have these long shots of like empty hallways or an empty chair. And you're like, oh my God, is he there or not? Oh my God, oh my God. And it's something similar, I think, yeah. that we're seeing with Mandalorian where like James was saying, like Pedro Pascal is, is sort of conveying all these really complex emotions without seeing his face. Like he, he's an actor without the use of probably his most important tool. He can use his voice. He can use his body language no facial expression and i think they make up for that in camera angles like james was saying and score and so like he's using these long shots of the mask and then backed by like either a somber or an excited or a happy or angry score to sort of bridge that gap where you can't see his facial expression but you have this long shot of just the mask and then you have this underlying mm -hmm. score sort of leading you down the path that you need to go down to understand what he's feeling. And then you're, you're using the mm -hmm. context of whatever scene he's in to understand it further. And I think that's why I love this series so much is they're not babying you. They're not like giving you every cue, every little iota of information and data so that you can come to a conclusion that way. They're like, okay, there's going to be things that you're not going to know. Like you're not going to know what face Din is making, but we're going to give you just enough information that you can bridge that gap by yourself. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. Right. It's, it's a show for adults and it was clearly not written to be fan service for yes. little babies who don't understand, you know, human emotion or anything like that. <laughs> like it, it makes sense. Yay. Roly robot. Exactly. Back. Yeah. It's Yay. like there's deeper meaning <laughs> and you have to infer that meaning. That's not to say that children can't watch it. Like my three-year-old niece, Josephine, shout out to Josephine is uh, really into Mandalorian. She <laughs> loves the show. And it's because of Grogu. Like, they, they've included fan service, oh, yeah. sure, because that's how you make money and that's how you keep people interested. But, like, the vast majority of the show is very complex and very deep, and I love it, like, a lot. It's really good. Okay, I just, I just, have, I just have one more thing that I, I want to say about uh, Chapter 16 to do with the CG. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's to do with the um, fucking dark troopers, right? Mm -hmm. They are so incredibly perfect. Yes. Mm -hmm. But not because of the CG, funnily enough. It's because the way that they did it is they used real people, but they only used the top half of the body. Right. Obviously, the joints and everything in between are CGI. They add in the CGI, go over them and everything. But the reason why it's so perfect is because what a lot of what a lot of people would do with a robot in a show is that they would just shove someone in a morph suit or a mocap suit and just chuck them in the scene, and that's mm -hmm. that's it. Then they'll put the plating on after. But what they did with this is they built full plastic coverings. On and put place them on the actors, which then gave them the real reflector, the real reflections from like the the stage and everything around them, and it also allowed for them to get a more kind of accurate 
looking character because if you if you do something cg obviously you're going to notice it mm-hmm. a lot of the time even if it even if it's the best cg ever like if you look at say the hulk in endgame it's incredible cg obviously you know it's cg but it's so pristine because of the fact that they used live plating and live live kind of images so with like the hulk they used they took i think it it was like hundreds of pictures of mark ruffalo's face in different uh expressions and variations and from different angles and then used that to create the model whereas with like luke in this episode they didn't do that which is one of the reasons why it doesn't look good and so with the dark troopers by them using the like an actual prop plating on the outside of the actor allowed Mm -hmm. them to get the perfect shadows and light reflections and also blemishes that you can't really make on like a computer you know you you get these little kind of wear and tear pieces within the plastic and the different kind of material materialistic the perfection is in the imperfections kind of deal yeah it's really exactly cool. and so i just like really wanted to say how just incredible and how much detail they paid to that because a lot of things wouldn't do it especially for a tv show because tv shows aren't as big a budget as a film mm-hmm. but i just think it was just incredible with what they did with that yeah for sure all right we've made it to the end of episode three Tune in next week where we individually rank the Star Wars films. Just a heads up, we each have really, really different rankings, so we do argue, and it's wonderful. (laughs) It's going to be a very spicy episode, so thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next Monday.